This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Monday. Daphne, how are you? Uh, I'm doing good. It's, it's we're just we're just uh, we're excited to start a new week. It's, it was a long long week last week. It's been a long week, and we've been trying to record this week for now <laughs> a week, <laughs> and we have not been able to find the time. Uh, um, I mean, I'm, I'm just amazed that we're even here right now doing this. <laughs> but you know, we we. We, we like get, getting the work done, you know, and uh, getting the feedback of... on the on the new format has been fun. Um, yeah. And so here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, um, it's been interesting for us to review and it's and it's like something I'm we're really proud of putting out there every week, every mm-hmm. every Sunday, every every other week for the new review podcast. Like it's, it's kind of nice to have that body of work out there. It's it's really neat. Um, we decided to pick the topic of ROP this week, which was a huge mistake. <laughs> <It's> a... <laughs> That's that sums up the week, yeah. <laughs> and uh, like, man, so many papers were published on ROP. God so damn it! So many papers, yeah. We should have picked a t- TTN, you know, just just straight up a little bit of oxygen, and there you go. <laughs> anyway, but ROP is a fascinating topic. Um, and I had read a lot of stuff about ROP, and, and even then, I, um, I, I I learned more every time I was looking up some stuff. It's crazy. I had not read a lot about ROP, <laughs> so this this week this was a this was a mountain. Yeah. I made a mountain out of a molehill about this week, but I think we learned. I think uh, I think people will learn a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot. So. The, the the key to this week actually is to remind people that this is not a complete overview of all the sure. literature on ROP. We're really <laughs> going to try to hit a lot of the big items to give you a sense of where we've been, where we are, where we're going. Um, and then you can, for yourself, start going down the rabbit hole, as 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 is the plan for this new format. Uh, so, <laughs> so we're going to be humble in the fact that this is not complete in any manner in any way but we had to pick um a select group of article and articles and and content to to make this palatable to make this interesting um but there's definitely a lot of stuff if one thing piques your interest there's there's tons of papers you could read Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so today we're talking about the history of rop and for uh those of you who don't know rop really came to be known in the 1940s uh, what happened was some babies that were born prematurely were brought up to their pediatrician and they were fined to be going blind. And they were brought to a local ophthalmologist. Uh, his name was Theodore Terry. And um, he he got consulted on, on a bunch of babies that were like two to six months old that were born prematurely and that they were just going blind. Um, he, he consulted other colleagues of his and they were baffled by what is this? What is this new, this new pathology? And he published the first report looking at um, ROP in 1942. And he describes his findings as, a, as an overgrowth of embryonic connective tissue in the interstices of the persistent tunica vasculosa lentis, which 
he eventually coins the term retrolental fibroplasia, which is what ROP will be known for from like the 1940s until the 1980s. And it's funny because it eventually replaced, initially it was known as Terry syndrome, and it was eventually mm-hmm. replaced by retrolental fibroplasia and eventually retinopathy of prematurity. So t- uh, Dr. Terry in, in the Boston area postulated that uh, retrolental fibroplasia was not present at birth, but developed between two to six months after birth. And uh, so they, they, they weren't sure that this was an embryologic issue, but mostly maybe something that develops after uh, the delivery. Uh, he was trying to understand some of the causes of this disease and, and even theorize that maybe like being exposed to light uh, could be the culprit of, of ROP. Um, he said in one of his report, actually, of all the probable causes, precocious exposure to light is considered the most tenable and preventive measure uh, should be taken. Uh, this theory of this light theory, as it was called, quickly got discarded. People tested it pretty readily. They started putting eye shields on babies and they still got ROP. Um, so, so yeah. The, the thing that was really concerning in the 1940s was that our, our retrolental fibroplasia and ROP was rapidly increasing. And so uh, Theodore Terry actually got like within the f- first three years from like 1940 like, to 1945, I think. But over the course of three years during the time, he, he was presented with 117 new cases of ROP. And then data from the UK uh, reported that um, ROP was seen in, in as much as 40% of babies born prematurely. Um, some people even said, and I quote, that ROP had reached like epidemic proportion. Um, and by the mid-1940s, it was already considered the leading cause of blindness in infants. It's so scary. I mean, can you imagine? Like, do you just, you don't know what's going on and just all these babies are going blind? Um, so. I think this is, right, this is the the in my opinion, the very much the plague aspect of ROP, which is that you're so happy that your baby was was survived the prematurity only to find right. that your baby's going blind. And at the time, there was nothing they could do about it. So it's, right. it's, it's terrifying. Um, so the big question was, why was this happening? So Bertha Klein, who was a renowned ophthalmologist in Chicago in 1949, published a report in the Archives of Ophthalmology. And she highlighted that the most likely pivotal role of anoxia, uh, so lack of oxygen, in the pathogenesis of the disease. Uh, Some animal experiments conducted in the 1950s continued to point at the fact that low oxygen environments may be responsible for ROP. I'm using ROP and ventrolental Mm -hmm. fibroplasia interchangeably. (laughs) Obviously, all these papers don't say ROP, but I feel like it's it's easier to, to discuss this as just ROP. So there's... In the 50s, people are just trying to figure this out, right? And they're like, what is the pathogenesis of this disease? People are saying, could it be related to what season of the year uh, you're born? Um, Exposure to light, as we've mentioned, like a deficiency in vitamin E, maybe a deficiency in vitamin A, exposure to cow's milk formula, blood transfusion. But regardless of all these different theories, there was a, a, um, a pretty significant body of evidence that showed that lack of oxygen was really an issue. Um, and, and really, this is always interesting in the history of ROP, how we kind of get close to the answer, but not really, mm-hmm. and then we, we move away. Um, and so how do we get to put oxygen at the forefront of the discussion? And so in the 1950s, there's a very interesting correspondence that is established between some doctors in the UK and Australia. 
Dr. Kate Campbell, who's from Melbourne, Australia, and uh, started communicating with doctors Mary Cross and Philip Jameson in Birmingham in England. And they started discussing some of these experiences that they had relating to uh, Oropi. And Dr. Campbell communicated to her peers in the UK that she noted an incidence of ROP of 18% and 7% between two units in Australia. So she's keen enough mm -hmm. to realize that like, there's a striking di difference. difference in the yeah. incidence of two units. And she's noting that she's, and, and she writes, interestingly, the unit with the lower incidence was also the one using less oxygen. Um, so then... Dr. Cross and Jameson in the UK found a sharp rise in the incidence of ROP after 1946 in the UK. And it's a fascinating epidemiologic finding uh -huh. where they're looking at how much resources the United Kingdom is investing in neonatal ICUs, how much resources they're investing in the survival of preemies. And they're noting that after 1946, after they received this huge influx of funds and they start having all these cool equipment with free-flowing oxygen, suddenly... Mm -hmm the rise in ROP is being seen. And they're actually plotting this graph in one of the papers. We'll have that on the website. You can take a it's look. It's incredible. It's insane. It's <laughs> insane. And, and for us um, to think about it, I'm, I'm always very much humbled by the epidemiologist because to me, I feel like even finding a little trend within your small unit, like, like a small unit, I mean, you have what? You have 60 beds on average or even less, and you find a little trend within your own unit. You feel like you're a genius. And to look at these people in the 1940s who are saying on a, on a national level, like this is the trend, it's just mind-boggling. Um, and so it's interesting that they're really starting to look at, hey, like maybe we shouldn't be providing that much oxygen. Maybe that's the issue. Unfortunately, there's some data that's being published around that time in 1951 by um, ACL Holton, uh, an ophthalmologist from the UK, who basically describes that although a rise in ROP did correlate with use of higher concentration of oxygen in the region of Oxford in the UK, new, ca new cases continue to occur even after they reduced the level of oxygen that they were using. And so that sort of dismissed a little bit some of that theory, which, which is a shame because they, mm -hmm. they were- They were on the right track. right there. Um, <laughs> And then there was another ophthalmologist that had that was very impactful in in his view of what caused ROP. His name was Thaddeus uh, Shevchik. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly from East St. Louis, Illinois, who basically postulated that the the the, the increase in in ROP was due to an abrupt discontinuation of oxygen supply. And he was saying like when we are having these babies, basically what okay for for the listeners who are from our generation, you have to understand that these incubators had basically an inlet valve mm -hmm. where oxygen was free flowing inside the incubator. So that was massive. And basically when they were moved the babies to an open crib, oxygen would be abruptly discontinued. So Shevchik made the arguments like, hey, we should transition these kids more slowly. And that's why they're developing ROP. It's this abrupt, uh, this abrupt interruption in oxygen uh, supplementation. So all these questions about oxygen are mounting. And then there's this interesting collaboration between a pediatrician named Leroy Hook and an ophthalmologist called Arnold Patz, who applied for a $4,000 grant from the NIH to detect the effect of oxygen on preterm infants. Um, and the story is that like, 
Alan Patz, who was the ophthalmologist, was like rounding in the NICU and he was talking to Dr. Hoke and he was saying like, all this oxygen you're using can't be good for the eyes. Mm. Uh, and, and he made that comment in passing and they started having a discussion and they said, maybe we should study that because there is some data out there that says maybe too much is not good, but maybe too little is not good. And so they applied for this grant to try to study it. The grant asked for uh, a nursery trial to compare the outcomes of infants weighing less than 1,600 grams, and they were assigned either to routine oxygen or low oxygen. Um, now, what's fascinating about this trial is that they had like the hardest time conducting the trial. And so what they found was that, uh, first of all, to get the grant, they were told like they were going to kill babies, that this was unethical. Um, anyway, they were trying to, they, they basically had to go back and forth telling them they were going to be careful. But what happened was that the nurses were not on board at all. <laughs> and so they were convinced that they were going to kill babies. So what happened was at night, the kids in the low oxygen group would be turned up and mm. the nurses would then turn the oxygen back down before they went uh, home in the morning. And so, um, again, I'm quoting from, from papers and I'm not just, this is not hearsay. So I, it's, it's interesting to see that, um, well, we know that we know that NICU nurses are fierce advocates for their patients, <laughs> right. for sure, right. for sure. Um, so they studied sixty-five infants, and the rates of ROP. So, despite all these obstacles, they were able to conduct their study. But the rates of ROP decreased from sixty percent in the high oxygen incubator group to sixteen percent in the low oxygen environment. Even so though they weren't, they even, were again <laughs> turned down. But this is this is the beautiful thing about being yeah. first on a research area is that even. A minimal intervention will have a dramatic mm -hmm. impact. Mm -hmm. So in 1952, after this paper uh, comes out, the American Academy of Ophthalmology and, um, and the otolaryngology uh, decide that they need to do a national cooperative study. Um, and it's spurred by um, Everett Kinsey, a research biochemist then at the Kriesge Eye Institute in Detroit, and Franklin Foote, then the director of the National Society for the Prevention of Blindness. There's a large meeting in Bethesda, and in early 1953, under the auspices of the Institute for Neurological Disease and Blindness of the U.S. Public Health Service, um, they had American pediatrician, ophthalmologist, all studying ROP, and they created this study that involved 18 centers beginning July 1953, and it continued until June 1954. They looked at babies weighing less than 1,500 grams who survived 48 hours, uh, and babies were either assigned routine oxygen, which was, listen to this, more than 50% for 28 days, <laughs> or curtailed oxygen, which was less than, 15, less than 50%. And they randomized this in a one to two, meaning... Uh, two babies were on low oxygen for one that was on high oxygen. They enrolled 786 babies and they were able to assess 586 of them for ROP. The rates of ROP in the control group, high oxygen, was about 70%. And in the curtailed group, it was about 30%. And wow. this sparked the era of low oxygen use, limiting the practice of, limiting the use of oxygen to less than 40%. And it became basically standard that everybody would try to keep oxygen below 40% because that study came out. And it's interesting because pioneers from the field, William Silverman um, among them, highlighted the fact that this was not the end of the, of the discussion, that the discussion should have continued, but people adopted this practice. And interestingly enough, the famous Mary Ellen Avery uh, started reporting that she was noting that more babies were dying of RDS. Um, and uh, in the UK, uh, Dr. McDonald noted a rise in spastic diplegia 
as cases of ROP went down. And, and he said, and I quote, there was some indication that prolonged oxygen therapy prevented diplegia in very immature infants with cyanotic attacks. It is suggested that this treatment may be of value if retrolental fibroplasia can be avoided. And so we don't really know what to do at this point, right? Because mm. some people are starting to point at the fact that, hey, like, yeah, it's great you're, you're curtailing oxygen and you're preventing ROP, but like these kids are having massive um, side effects as a result. And so really this this sets the background for the support trial that's that starts to look at the oxygen therapy. And just to give you an idea, the, the support trial quotes that restrictive oxygen therapy caused 16 additional deaths for one case of ROP prevented. So this was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Looking looking back, obviously, I'm not judging the people back then. They were working with the information that they had, but this was really a big, a big issue. Um, but for all intents and purposes, the question was closed, right? Babies were still not going to get more than 40%. And what happened also around that time is that um, um, cryo um, was becoming available as a treatment. So we could start treating a little bit some of these um, ROP babies. But in the 1960s, um, ROP sort of disappeared. And students were not really taught about the disease, which was considered then a closed chapter of neonatology. There was this hallowed 40% rule. Um, 40% was safe for the eyes, that you could use 40% if you, more than 40% if you needed, but that was really dangerous. Um, and unfortunately, there was indirect evidence that both infants who received 40% but needed more to relieve cyanosis from respiratory distress and healthy preterm infants who received uh, weeks of 40% oxygen both suffered. And then it reappears in the 1970s as the technical abilities of medicine are improving and now smaller babies are surviving. And so now you can imagine in the 70s, after the the death of uh, John Kennedy's baby and more funds are poured into neonatology and more preterm babies are being allowed to survive, suddenly the rates of ROP start going up again. Mm -hmm. And really, as we know now, the 40% rule is not a solution to ROP. So the rates of ROP start really coming up. Um, And so in the 70s and 80s, there's a a resurgence of studies on ROP to try to understand its pathology, staging, and this is when this name has changed from retrolental fibroplasia to retinopathy of prematurity. Um, And we're starting to get a better understanding that the primary cause of ROP is prematurity, and the condition only secondarily occurs after birth. Um, The new technology of indirect ophthalmoscope permits a better view of the infant's eye and highlighted how ROP was much more prevalent than previously thought. And that's 1976. So as technology improves, we start to get a better Mm -hmm. understanding of what these eyes are looking like. We can uh, screen them sooner. The duration of oxygen administration remained strongly correlated with ROP risk and with other medical complications. And so even to date, um, it still has not been determined whether this effect is only an association or a cause. Um, and so I think this is this sets the backdrop for all the different studies on both the pathophysiology, the different settings in which we should keep babies that are at risk for ROP and some of the treatments. So this is a little bit of the history of ROP in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, the whole saga, and it really is a saga, mm-hmm. is, um, is quite humbling, right? About medicine and how we learn as we go and how things change as we learn. Um, and it 
it reminds you that we've come a long way in a very short amount of time, especially in neonatology. And it is interesting to think about what we will learn in the same amount of time moving forward. Or what are we doing today that people will look That's back right. and say, and say yeah. I can't believe you guys did that. They used to cut these babies open and look at their guts with a naked eye. <laughs> yeah. Now we just scan them. And... Right. Um, anyway. All right, Daphna. Anything else before we uh, close today's show? No, I, I think that's it uh, for today. Uh, on to tomorrow. All right, see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.